Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I was 14 years old when I preached my first sermon to a congregation. (laughs) Shouldn't have done it. (laughs) Too young, too young, too inexperienced. Uh, It was at St. Peter's Reformed Church in Zillianople. There were 250 people present for that sermon, whatever was in it. (laughs) Glad I don't know at this point. Uh, But my... uh, my great-grandfather was very proud of me, and he knew that I was in the midst of a personal crucible because at home my parents were going through a, a pretty rough divorce, and I wasn't really fitting in terribly well at high school, but I was given this opportunity to shine, and he knew that we were really broke and didn't have enough money to buy a, a suit, and I probably shouldn't have done uh, sweatpants and a Steelers jersey in the pulpit. So he brought me to men's warehouse and uh, got me this nice suit so that I could uh, preach with a little dignity and a little class. And I know that may sound like a, a silly thing or an unimportant gesture, but it was very important to me as a young man to uh, be able to um, not only be in that place, which I shouldn't have been in, but at least to look presentable and to look a little mature. Uh, there was something about that suit that made me feel a lot better about myself. And uh, maybe you've experienced that too. You have, a, you have something that you wear that makes you feel a little more confident. Well, it did that for me. And I want to speak today about the, uh, the spiritual clothes that St. Paul wants for all of us, clothes that will give us a real sense of self, actually. And uh, that's found in uh, chapter 4. Uh, verses 17 through 24. Those are the verses I'm going to focus on tonight, uh, where Paul talks about wearing new clothes in an old culture. That's what I'm speaking about, new clothes in an old culture. And that's not just written to, to me as a, as a 14-year-old who shouldn't have been in a pulpit, but it's, it's for all of us. What does it mean to wear new clothes within an old culture? Well, we got to start with the culture, because Paul has some rough things to say in the early part of this passage. And uh, I'd like to move through it together. So let's, let's read it. Uh, this is in verse 17. Please uh, follow along in your bulletins or in your Bibles. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord. And he, by that, he's saying, it's not my opinion. It's not, I'm testifying in the Lord. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. I think what he's doing here is fascinating, and here's why. Uh, so Paul is writing to Gentiles. Like you, you know that, right? These are people that live in Turkey. The, the old, part of the old Greek empire, you know? He's writing to these uh, people who converted from paganism to Christianity. Many of them. There may have been a few Jews there, but most of these people were pagans. And they encountered Jesus Christ, were baptized into Jesus Christ, brought into the church, brought into the family of God. Uh, and notice what Paul is doing linguistically here as he writes to these Gentiles. He says, 
This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Well, they are Gentiles. But what but Paul in a very subtle way is redefining what the word Gentile means. You know, within Judaism, being a Gentile meant that you weren't part of the tribe of Abraham. You didn't have any DNA that went back to, you know, Sarah. You know, you you didn't know the story of Moses. You were outside the fold. But now, according to Paul, the true Gentiles, those who are far off, those who have been uh, distanced from God, is anybody not outside of Moses or Abraham, but anybody outside of Christ. So your DNA doesn't matter anymore, right? Because God has made one new man, he writes in Ephesians, one new man out of Jews and Gentiles. So the true Israel of God is anybody who believes in Jesus, regardless of their pedigree, parentage, uh, birthrights, DNA, etc. So, but he says, you that are now brought near to God in Christ, you are surrounded by a culture of Gentiles, that is people who are disassociated from God. And that is going to be a little bit of trouble for you, actually, because you need to, at least in your walk and how you function, have a noticeable difference between you and them. It can't be the same anymore. You can't function like you used to function. That's not going to fly. Uh, and, and so he redefines in some ways what the word Gentile means. It's those outside of Christ. And what he says about these folks is, at least within our day, it's, I mean, it's hard on the ears, right? Hard on the eyes because we don't like to talk about people this way or categorize people this way. But he's saying that if you are detached from God, if you're really a Gentile, a true Gentile, outside of Christ, distanced from God, there are going to be some ramifications of that that are quite dehumanizing. And I don't want you to walk in that dehumanizing way. And he lists, rather controversially, the sort of decaying fruits that manifest in a Gentile culture that is disassociated from Christ. Uh, Mentions several uh, poisoned fruits. And what's interesting is most of them have to do with one's internal life. Some have to do with practice, but most have to do with the, the disturbed core of a person who is disassociated from God, who has a broken bond with God. And this is, notice all the internal life language of heart and mind. This is in, uh, beginning in, uh, verse uh, 17. The futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated in God because of ignorance, hardness of heart, callous, given up to sensuality, which is an internal mode of being, greedy to practice impurity. And those things have behavioral associations, but they begin within. All of them do. It's fascinating and important. But what Paul is writing is the way the Gentile world functions, that is, if you're outside of a reconciled relationship with God and Christ, the mark of the Gentile world is not only a misdirection of morals, but also a misperception of reality. You're not seeing the world the way the world actually is. You're seeing it askew. Um, If you grow up within the church or you have what they call in the 1990s a Christian worldview, uh, which is not, uh, all, th- that language isn't altogether bad. It's not complete, but it's not bad. But the, the, um, y- you have certain, you have a certain grid through which you examine reality or a certain way that you uh, think about the world. For example, you would understand, if you have a biblical worldview, you would understand that there is a singularity to the heavens, that everything is localized 
uh, in, in God, that God is the source of all things. And the source of all things is not wreckage or carnage or brutality, but is love and is evidence that love uh, in many ways, but ultimately, chiefly by sending Jesus Christ to suffer and to die and to rise again to reclaim us from where we were, that the heavens are uh, providentially and positively disposed toward you. You know, the, the, the sky is not uh, uh, littered with disdain, but heaven is for you. Well, that's a biblical worldview. But let's imagine, for example, that you think the heavens are vacant or maybe the heavens have antipathy for you. You would have eventually all sorts of misperceptions about reality with that foundational belief and then all sorts of ways that you act out of your animus because of, uh, because of what you believe about the heavens because of your worldview, so to speak. In other words, if you begin with a vision of reality that has nothing to do with God and Christ, uh, you will misperceive reality. That's what he's saying. You will have a darkened heart, darkened understanding, and ignorance. That's what he's saying. Uh, now, you may remember the Mother Goose poem about the crooked man. Some of you know this. I don't know. I didn't memorize it as a kid, so I'm just going to read it to you because I don't know it. There was a crooked man who walked a crooked mile. He found a crooked sixpence against a crooked style. He bought a crooked cat, which caught a crooked mouse, and they all lived together in a little crooked house. I love it because really what that's about, what that poem is about, is not that everything in the world is crooked, but that the man is crooked and therefore perceived everything else is crooked. There are no such thing as crooked mice, right? But there are crooked people that are tilted in their understanding and misperceive reality all the time. And what Paul is saying is the Gentile world or the world disassociated from God and Christ doesn't perceive reality as reality, but contorts it within. Uh, and I experienced this personally years ago in, uh, in, in New Jersey, uh, of course, yes. Um, I was at a party with some old friends after a speaking engagement, and we went to a pub with, I went to a pub with uh, five other people, and uh, I decided from the start I was going to be the magnanimous friend uh, and foot the bill for everybody there. And they liked that a lot, and I learned an important lesson. But they they drank and uh, ate, and as the drinks were flowing, the the conversation became more and more lurid, to be honest. And uh, they were bragging, boasting about very dark exploits and all sorts of details that I didn't want to know, and uh, uh, but and was sort of stunned by. And I I have to tell you, friends, I am neither a Puritan nor a prude, but I was really, really uncomfortable. And I realized something in myself that uh, I love these people, but they are not my people. Like what they love and adore and yearn for and want and are working toward, nothing that I want in my own life. And in fact, I feel really kind of gross hearing about it. And that's not disdain, nor is it judgment. It's just noticing that there is now a difference between what we're after and that difference can't be bridged with all the money and goodwill in the world. And by the way, the bill at the end of the meal was $480. And so I learned two lessons that night. You know, you know, a, little, a, little, a few more boundaries and, uh, and only buy the first round and make sure it's Coors Light. You know? <laughs> but, uh, um, but I learned a lesson about sort of the Gentile world and 
Um, and I'm asking the question tonight, who are our Gentiles? Who are your Gentiles? Who are the people that are disassociated from God, uh, so would have, would have a disdain or disgust for what you really do feel in your heart about God? Who are those people, uh, and how, um, how do you long for their approval? Right, because we do to some degree. I mean, if we uh, if if there's no lore, no temptation uh, of the Gentile world, there would be, in some ways, no old rags or old clothing to strip away, which is what he talks about next. But there is a sense in which we uh, long for the world's acceptance uh, in 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 various ways. But I'm wondering who your Gentiles are. It might be your family. Maybe your family is driven by this success narrative that you have to be zealous above all things for accomplishing your goals and making a lot of bank and proving to the world that you and, by proxy, them are successful. Maybe that's their narrative, their substructure. Uh, or maybe it's the academy, the academy with its endless sublimated sibling rivalry, and it's all about competition and recognition. Uh, maybe that's uh, the culture uh, of Gentiles that you deal with. Or maybe it's like a libertarian culture that, uh, that really, above all things, wants personal autonomy. And yes, of course, there's a place for the good Lord, good Lord theology. Uh, there's a place for the good Lord, and we're grateful to the good Lord, so long as the good Lord is useful and lends support to our vision of low taxation, or whatever it is, you know. Or maybe your, uh, your culture is, uh, your Gentile culture is the, the woke culture, whatever that word means now, but that yearns to give sort of non-binary pygmy vampires the right to marry the ghost of Charlie Chaplin or whatever whatever they're after like in this current moment or maybe your culture is sort of the the kind of um, you you acquiesce to and are given to in your proclivities the porn culture that denigrates women but then calls it sex positivity to give a an atoning spin a linguistic spin on what in fact is very degrading to women or maybe it's a culture that lusts after the, the newest gadget, the newest iPhone, or the newest handsome or beautiful picture on Instagram so that you can get the likes, or whatever it is. But we all live within cultures, or we all within, live within these Gentile groups that are, that are like sirens calling to us, uh, calling us to detach from other bonds and to attach to them so we can be defined by them. And, uh, and But Paul speaks up to us, and he says not to disdain people and not to abandon people. That's never the call. But instead, we are called to non-emulation. That is, what you see that categorically opposes the very open and clear will of God in Holy Scripture and, and enfleshed in Jesus Christ, that needs to be run away from. That needs to be abandoned. That needs to be non-emulated. Um, in other words, he says, do not walk or function as the Gentiles do. So um, to be in the world, but not of the world, to quote John Newton, who paraphrases the scripture. Uh, now, um, here's what you and I both know, though. We are people of a culture who have been brought into the culture of the church via baptism and faith. And now we have to begin the lifelong process of determining what factors of the old culture have to go. And what clothing, old, dilapidated clothing, needs to be stripped away. And so he moves now from culture to clothing. And this is verse 22, where he speaks about clothing. And let's read it um, together. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So he says, 
put off and put on. Put off the old clothing, put on the new clothing. So he likens one's approach to life, one's uh, functional engagement with the world as clothing. Now, some Christians, uh, especially earlier on, took this quite literally. That's why the Amish community and Old Order Mennonites would always wear distinctive clothing to show that they were not part of civil, bougie society. And uh, that's why the Huguenots did that in France. They were a Protestant sect, terribly persecuted uh, by the Roman Catholic Church. And they eventually uh, started wearing black all the time because they said, for us, every day is Good Friday, right? It's all dark all the time. And that was their way of distancing themselves from the surrounding culture. But modern Christians do this, too, to some degree, but it's more commercialistic. We just like swag, right? I mean, when I was growing up, like in youth group, Christian bookstores were all the, the rage, and you had to get a lot of swag, like bumper stickers and very interesting crosses and tacky T-shirts and moralistic bracelets. And, and then there were mints that you had to give away to your friends. Do you remember these testaments? Do you remember this uh, nonsense? <laughs> well, testaments, they were mints and they didn't taste very good. They sort of tasted like plastic and spearmint and they had, but they had little crosses on them. And so you're supposed to give them to your friends so that you could have conversations about mints, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> or, or, or atonement and mints. I don't know. But, but I mean, it, I mean, it's one way to live your life. Uh, but whatever Paul is meaning here, he doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean swag. He doesn't mean um, dressing all in black. Uh, in fact, uh, he, he means something far more uh, profound. Uh, he, he, he says that um, you have to understand life and engagement with life as clothing that you don, and you have to strip away certain garments and don other ones. And I think there's good news in that imagery, good news in the imagery of clothing. And let me tell you why. Uh, there's good news in the concept of sin as being your clothes, but not your person. And he, here's what I mean by that. He's implying here that your sin can be shed. I mean, all your hangups and the things that you hate about yourself and the things that make you feel so ashamed that you're terrified to admit to another person in this church. that You won't admit to your spouse, you know, all of that. It could be shed, you know. Um, I find it interesting, uh, and one of the, so I believe in a low anthropology, meaning that every aspect of the human condition has fallen. But sometimes we can have a misconstrual of that, where we start thinking, not so much that every part of me has fallen, but that I am sin. That sin is so inextricable to my desires, my habits, my inner pathologies, my drives, my imagination, that there is no differentiation, differentiation between me and sin. I am it. But Paul, in his uh, mature years, when he wrote the book of Romans, discovered something in Romans 7. You know the passage where he talks about why is it that I'm an idiot, right? That's what he says in the Greek. Why am I a moron? I do all this stuff that I shouldn't be doing, and I should be doing another. I know better, but it doesn't seem to matter. Uh, but then he makes a self-correction in the middle of the letter. He said, well, not I but sin that dwells within me. It's a very intelligent thought. He's making a distinction between his redeemed self and the old nature that clings on, but they're not exactly the same thing. There is a Paul that exists now because of the redemption and love of God and the adoption into God's family. There is a Paul that exists apart from that acting out self. And that's really fascinating. And important. And I think we need to think about things in that light. That is, if you are a redeemed person that has entrusted uh, your sin and your fallen virtue 
uh, to Christ himself, well, then sin is not yourself. You are a person who is forgiven, treasured, loved, and secure uh, in God. Uh, You are a person who is chiefly redeemed. Um, And your sin, by God's grace, can be exfoliated from you. But it does not define your person. So there's something of good news in sin as Garmin. But then he says you take that off and you place something else on you. Um, Righteousness, he calls it. Righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness means health. It's functioning in a healthy, strong way, as God intended you to function in the world. So it's you at your best, you at your healthiest in God, uh, learning uh, learning the joy of saying okay to whatever God says. You're learning to, learning to yield, learning to, to see obedience not as slavery, but as freedom. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. But thriving as a person, that's righteousness. And, and, he, and Paul says that that's our clothing now. That's our rightful clothing. Now, clothes in the Bible, when it, it's metaphorical, is almost always used in a salvific way, meaning it, it always, almost always has to do with salvation or God doing something to your person in order to save you. That's clothing in the Bible over and over again. We see this in Luke 24 when Jesus predicts the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says, you wait in the city until you are clothed, clothed with power from on high. Uh, So those who are about to receive the living spirit of the eternal God, you will be clothed in that spirit. Then 1 Corinthians 15, Paul looks forward in history, sees the resurrection of the dead. And he says regarding that resurrection, you will all be clothed with immortality, right? You're going to get a new body, but that new body is something that almost happens upon you. You'll be clothed by God with immortality. And then in Revelation 7, at the end of history, St. John looks at all of the redeemed and sees that they're wearing the same outfit. He says that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. But they've been clothed with innocency through the shed blood of Jesus, right? So clothing is a way of saying that God is doing something to your person, And it reminds us that clothing imagery that comes to us from the outside reminds us that it's all a gift. It's all a a beautiful gift that we've been given. Not only that we're saved from the guilt of our sin, but in this life we begin to be saved from the effects of that very present sin. That it might not only be shed, but replaced with beautiful things. And that's the hope. That's the hope. That's why, by the way, when we baptize people here, we make them wear this, right? Like this baptismal garment to show all of us that new life is possible and you can be clothed with righteousness from on high. That's the idea. Um, Or to put it another way, uh, you know, Paul lists a bunch of virtues. We'll get to that in the passage later on about what this righteousness looks like. And it looks like not scamming people. And it looks like being strong when people tear you down. You're so strong that you don't have to rip them to shreds in response. You know, you don't have to get a mean email and send a mean email. It can die with you. You don't have to be reactive in in an idiot hothead who's just always looking for a fight. You don't need to pick on people. You don't need to scam people and rip them off. You don't need to, like, abuse people physically or emotionally or sexually. You don't need to be that person. That's what Paul is saying later. He's like, that's what righteousness uh, looks like. And if I can put it this way in a summary statement to you about the giftness of this new garment, Christ not only died to take your sin away, Christ died for your dignification, 
Like Christ died to dignify you, to bring you back to your humanity, to say to you, you don't need to live in the gutter all the time. Like you, you were made of better stuff than that. And you were redeemed for more than that. You know, you're not scum. You don't need to live as scum. Like you're bold and you're intelligent and you're a solid person in Christ. And the idea is with this garment stuff that your inner or your core has been redeemed by Jesus. And now the garment that you wear, how you function in the world should match that core. If you're a prince, you should act like a prince. If you're a princess, you should act like a princess. You're royalty now. It's to give you dignity. That's why he says in this passage, in this very same passage in verse 24, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. That's image of God language. Genesis language goes back to the beginning language saying Jesus came to give you back your original dignity that was robbed to you by life and abuse and hell and everything else. He came to give it back and it's yours again. So don't debase yourself with all this stuff that has that has nothing to do with your new humanity. That's you get it. I and mean, that's the idea. So um, we have new clothes, but we wear them within this old world. And so we're always in this process of first recognizing the tattered garments because we don't see them all at the same time. By the way, if God showed you all your mess right away, you would have a stroke and couldn't grow as a Christian because you would be dead. And I don't want that, and he doesn't want that. So he like lets you see little things so that you don't have the stroke. So um, so you'll see new elements of your tattered fabric. And when he shows you those things, it's not to hurt you. It's to say, this is the thing that's now going to be replaced. Like, this is going to go, but something else beautiful is coming. And this happens through life, this stripping away and this being clothed anew so that you can be a creature that is free and strong in God, dignified in God. So now... That's the idea. Culture, the old culture, and the new clothing. But I'm going to close with this question, hopefully answer it to some degree, though it's the, the answer is profound and probably endless. Um, how? I mean, how does this like, happen, practically? How does it happen that you, are, um, that you, are, that you experience a, a new outfit, a new wardrobe, right? How do we accept and appropriate the new life that is in Christ within this old culture? I think the answer is complicated, but it's like, if I could narrow it down, it's like twofold. It happens like internally and externally. It happens in what you feel and think, and then in what you do. But I think both need to be operable, actually, in order for you to get the full experience, right, of new clothing. So here's what I mean. Here's the mental bit. Here's why Paul is so hard. Sometimes he mixes metaphors. This is what he says in verse 25. Please read it with me. Or verse 23, rather. Verse 23. He writes, To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self. So he's saying something about how your internal... your internal life and the shaping of your internal life affects your external expression of that life, right? So you have to have your mind renewed in order to wear the new garment. I mean, it's a little complicated, right? But, you know, he's a genius, and geniuses are complicated. Uh, But that's the idea, that you have to have um, this internal change that corresponds to your expression on the outside. Well, um, here's, uh, here's how it works. 
um, uh, Christianity, when the gospel starts soaking into you, your perceptions that you used to have start to be inflicted, right, or afflicted. That you used to see the world, the self, the heavens, the uh, other people, uh, social engagement in one way, but now because of the renewal of the mind, uh, you're experiencing and thinking about things in new and sometimes threatening ways. Um, but the, the new invades. And by the way, um, that's, that's why the church exists. The church exists tonight to deal with your emotional, spiritual, mental problems. It's really true. Like, we're here to proclaim to you the true perception, insofar as we're rightly understanding the scripture, the true perception of life. We're here to give a cleansing within so that you perceive rightly. So we're here placarding the external word of God upon your internal lives until your internal lives are shaped. And this is why, biblically speaking, the self does not define the self. God defines the self. Because the self is not unbiased enough to define the self. Or, or I was going to say off-kilter, but can you be kiltered? The self is not kiltered enough uh, to define the self. We need some external source with more veracity. So where God has revealed something, we lean into his vision rather than the one that we've created in the last eight minutes or that we read on a blog. Um, if anybody reads, or that we heard on a podcast. Uh, now I'm like not dating myself as much. Good. Um, so that's why we're here, to redress our interior lives and to conform us to the undying culture of the kingdom of God, which ultimately has the day. So just as clothing comes to us from the outside today, we're all about clothing you with the external word. This is what happens in preaching, right? You're listening to an external word come to you. It's what happens in the sacrament when you're receiving an external word given to you. But then what happens, right? You're hearing it, so you're taking it in. Or you're eating it and drinking it, so you're taking it in. So it's the external word given to you and then uh, inculcated into your system so that it, uh, it, it merges with your person. And so the culture, our Gentile culture, may define you, may define you as entirely defiled by a degraded, embarrassing past. Here we're telling you, you're actually entirely and 100% forgiven by love. The culture may define you as the sum of all your deeds. You are what you repeatedly do. We say you are justified by grace only. The culture may say that salvation is when you're finally affirmed in every way as you are. We say, no, Christ only died for sinners, and you are one, but you are loved as a sinner. The culture may say that we are random accidents in a world of non-meaning. We say, you are a reflection of the undying heavens. You are a reflection of God himself. The goal of this proclamation, and sometimes this contrarian proclamation, is that our interior lives, our minds, our hearts, our desires, our imaginations, our wills, would be enlightened and therefore engaged in a new way. But we are here for that kind of cleansing, to proclaim the external word which changes the interior of the person. So that's the mental part of the interior part. Now something about the behavioral part. Because Paul uses a lot of action language in this passage, later in the passage, to describe a righteous form of life. Again, talks about not lying, not sinning when we're angry, using our bodies in glorifying ways rather than degrading ways, uh, watching our words, refraining from slander, etc. Uh, and so the new life in Christ has an external expression in our relationships and our habits and our modes of expression. 
Um, and this new life, friends, here's what I've learned that's so hard. This new life will not always feel natural at the outset. And sometimes we mistake something not feeling natural or feeling hard at the beginning with, with something that ought to be eschewed from our experience. Um, right? Because we live within a moment that says, you do you. Like, do it comes naturally. Here's what, I, what I'm saying. Like, I'm kind of an expert sinner. Like, I'm very good at it. And you are too, in your own ways, right? You have your ruts and so do I. Uh, we, uh, we, we express ourselves very well in those areas. And righteousness in those areas of sin will always initially feel completely foreign because we're professionals at the other thing. And so, of course, it's going to feel weird and terrible and uncomfortable to avoid it or to have it um, offered on a bloody altar to God. But this is why, um, because the new life will feel unnatural at times to us, this is why I encourage people to go through the motions. That gets a bad rap in our age. And by the way, I don't mean lie. What I mean is, if your heart isn't entirely in something, but you sort of feel like you should do it, but you push back against it because it's not feeling natural, and you're waiting for your heart to be fully ready and engaged, um, sometimes it's best just to go through the motions because the motions are better than your heart kind of picking up what I'm putting down. Uh, uh, um, here's, uh, here's what I mean. I have a friend who's in AA and uh, says this to his uh, sponsees. Uh, he's a sponsor. He said, look, if you're tempted to drink and you wait until you feel like calling your sponsor, like 100%, you're going to make the phone call and you're going to put down the bottle of Jack Daniels. If you wait um, till you feel ready, you're feeling Four booze will overpower your feeling for a phone call because it's the call that is unnatural, but it's the unnatural thing that you need. And so sometimes doing the unnatural thing, whether it is saying your prayers when you don't want to pray, whether it's confessing something rather dark to somebody who loves you, whether it's uh, reading the word, whether it's really taking in the preacher instead of just being ticked off that he's, you know, he, he said something you didn't like, whatever it is. Um, even though it feels unnatural, I would encourage you to do it because uh, the scripture says something funny about our feelings, at least in our fallen condition, that our hearts, do you remember the passage in Jeremiah, are desperately wicked. Who can understand them? So just because your heart is pro something or against something doesn't have anything to do with the veracity of the thing. So sometimes we just need to enter into the process before we fully feel it. Learning the new life is like learning a new language. It takes time, attention, uh, and, deliberate, and deliberateness. But the goal, the goal is that what is foreign in righteousness will eventually become a new normal. A new normal. Um, I'm going to, I hope this doesn't sound braggy because I don't mean it that way. Um, but uh, Monique, uh, you would not believe this. In the beginning of our relationship, well, before when we were just friends, she didn't want to date I mean, I'm kind of the whole package. No, that's not. I can't even say that with a straight face because it's just so profoundly untrue. Um, but she didn't want to date me. Why? Uh, because I was a, I was hard-hearted and mean and spiteful. But what happened is through pain and hardship and through God's love, I became more compassionate. 
And I kind of normalized and mellowed. And, and that's become, in a, in a way, sort of a growing new normal. And that's a good thing. And I don't say that to brag because I've seen better things in you than I've seen in me. But that's happening in you too. And God can inculcate righteousness in such a way that it feels like a garment that fits just perfectly. I'm going to close with this story. I have a friend. Her name is Nancy. Uh, and in her um, 20s, she lived, let's, uh, she lived a rather licentious life. She lived with licentious fervor. Uh, she's written about it publicly, so I'm not spilling the beans. Uh, she was raised in this very crampy, strict, fundy household. And remember, you can't spell fundamentalism without F-U-N. Uh, and um, and uh, her, her parents, she called them in this essay, her grand inquisitors, you know, so she didn't like them. And, uh, and so predictably, she rebelled. It's just obvious because the law increases the trespass. She rebels. And, and her rebellion took the form of uh, lots of romantic dalliances, to be PG about it. Like over the years, she had this endless string of hookups. But this romance, this bad romance took a toll. She ended up um, uh, an, an addict of narcotics, ended up in a drug he- rehab. And within this rehab, she met this nice guy who had a similar past but wanted to make things right. And they started to date. And eventually she did something she swore she would never do. She agreed to marry him. And uh, her um, rather difficult, pharisaical mother uh, was so elated that Nancy was normalizing and getting married that she wanted to be hyper-involved and to buy her daughter the wedding dress. Uh, So they went to this bridal gown store, and my friend Nancy was looking at only the peach-colored dresses and the off-white dresses, you know? They have a whole, yeah. And uh, she was looking at those, and uh, her mother noticed it and said, uh, Honey, why aren't, you, why aren't you looking at the nicer dresses? Why aren't you looking at the white dresses? And Nancy said with like this self-deriding laugh of all people, I don't deserve to wear white on my wedding day. <laughs> And her mother, uncharacteristically, responded uh, with boldness and was quite stern with with Nancy and said, I don't ever want to hear you say that again, because today you are wearing white, my dear. You are wearing white. Well, Nancy wrote about this experience later. This is in her essay. In that moment, I was redefined by grace. I was no longer the slut, no longer used up and thrown away. I was someone again, a woman again. My whole future hinged upon that moment and upon those lovely words. She was redressed. She was redressed. And so are you. Because today, my dears, we are all wearing white. Amen. They took your life. They could not take your